0: The royals were so different when I was a kid. You know, I found them absolutely fascinating. I mean, I was a gay kid growing up in the middle of Texas. So, of course, I was drawn to the glamour and I was just caught up in the, wow, they live in those big houses. And it seemed fascinating to me.
1: That is Jess Cagle, former editor-in-chief of People magazine. Growing up in a small town in Texas, the royals seemed larger than life. The fashion, the palaces, the glitz and glamour. It seemed way more like a fairy tale than reality. But over the years, Jess began to notice a shift in how the royals were being portrayed. Less of that pomp and pageantry and a lot more raunch and scandal.
0: There's something satisfying to people when they see that these impossibly glamorous people have the same problems that we do, that their lives are really no better than ours. There's a lot of schadenfreude involved. But I think that over the past couple of decades, the media has changed. So the media serves us more and more and more.
2: The royals' relationship with the media has a long and complicated history. While the saying goes, all press is good press, the Windsors know all too well that isn't necessarily the case.
3: The last day of their tour and the Duke and Duchess were back in front of the press, Prince Harry believes is waging a campaign against his wife. When I started my public life 12 years ago, I understood the media might be interested in what I did, but I was not aware of how overwhelming that attention would become.
4: She was failed not just by a rogue reporter, but by leaders at the BBC who looked the other way rather than asking the tough questions.
2: In this episode, we'll speak with former editor-in-chief of People magazine, Jess Cagle, media scholar Laura Clancy, and royal historian and biographer Andrew Lowney about the intricate relationship between the royals and the press.
1: With Princess Diana's former private secretary, Patrick Jefferson, and writer and cultural critic, Sean Fay, We'll explore the rise of the tabloids and the 24-hour news cycle. And look at how social media has changed the way we report on the royals and upset the careful balance between exposure and privacy.
2: We'll investigate how William and Harry have tried to readjust the balance back in their favor after the press's obsession with their mother. And we'll consider if a series of missteps in the carefully crafted sit-down interview is exactly why the Queen has never given one.
1: I'm Katie Nichol. And I'm Erin Vanderhoof. From Vanity Fair, this is Dynasty, The Windsors.
2: Episode 7, Clash of the Titans, The Global Press
1: versus The Crown. So, Katie, how did you get involved in covering the royals?
2: Well, I suppose Erin is with all good things in life, completely by accident. I'd always wanted to be a journalist, but I wanted to be a war correspondent, not a royal one. I cut my teeth as a show business reporter on The Mail on Sunday, uh, which was pretty cool because I spent years just going to parties. And it was actually at one of those parties that I ended up bumping into Prince Harry, who was meant to be studying for his A-levels at the time. But instead, of course, being Harry, he was out drinking and having fun, which immediately endeared me to him. And he actually invited me to come and have a drink with him and his inner circle. So I guess I got this fascinating snapshot of his life. And that lit the touch paper for my career as a royal correspondent
1: he opened the door to a
2: secret world yeah i know how much do you reckon he regrets doing that now
1: <laughs> well i've learned from my years doing this that it is really just unlike most other journalism assignments
2: you're right it is completely different to any other beat and i think that's for a couple of reasons actually you're covering a family okay not many people in that family. So it's very, very intensive. It's not like covering show business where you have lots of celebrities you can write about. You've also got to find your own stories. People are usually unwilling to talk to you. Certainly nothing is delivered on a silver platter. It's fiercely competitive. And I always remember being told by one editor, you are only as good as your last scoop, last byline. So there's a pressure. You don't want to get things wrong. You just don't want to have egg on your face. And... I think it's tough because often you are reliant on sources who can't be named. So you're constantly walking this tightrope between wanting to break these great stories, which of course get coverage around the world, they get picked up, but also not wanting to fall out with the palace, with the royals themselves. So it's, um, it's a balancing act, shall we say.
1: It's interesting that you said you originally wanted to be a war correspondent, because when we spoke to media scholar Laura Clancy, she actually compared that job to being a royal correspondent. Not in terms of substance, but in terms of how media organizations carve out an entire beat for royal reporting. If you think of a
3: foreign correspondent or a war correspondent, actually to have a royal correspondent kind of privileges royal news at the same level. And I think one really important way in which that is done is through this balance between visibility and invisibility. It is definitely a job that requires a bit of choreography. And well before I came to
2: this line of work, there were long-standing agreements between the press and the palace that made this song and dance, as it were, work, where the royals could remain in the
3: public eye whilst preserving their privacy to a degree. Here's Laura Clancy again. So things like the pressure cooker agreement, which is where particular royals will invite particular journalists on, for example, family holidays. They'll be asked to take a couple of photos and then they'll be asked to leave and leave the royals
1: alone. About that pressure cooker agreement... Back when William and Harry were teenagers, there was an unwritten pact between the family and the press. The deal was that the press more or less agreed to leave the boys alone while they were at school, so long as they were allowed to cover a handful of pre-approved events like William's 18th birthday at Eton. Yeah, that's right. And for the most part, Erin, it worked. The press got a
2: certain amount of access, and the royal family got to enjoy some semblance of a private life. And it continued that way for some time But there was a loophole. Here's historian Andrew Lowney.
4: That only works if you're inside the tent in terms of the news organisations who are a part of that system. It's the people outside, it's the tabloids, it's the freelancers, the paparazzi who break those rules. Now it's pretty much open house.
1: And because they're outside of the system, it's not so much breaking the rules as much as it is ignoring them or not being let in on them in the first place. Around this time, we also saw the move to a 24-7 news cycle. How did that alter the job of a royal correspondent?
2: Well, it did change it because, quite simply, there was more pressure to deliver more stories. I mean, Erin, at that time, I was working for the Mail on Sunday newspaper. Can you imagine trying to keep a scoop that you might get Monday or Tuesday until the end of the week? It was really tough. But I've also seen a big shift in the way that news gets picked up and sort of re-manufactured. And I think it's often how stories are interpreted by other online news outlets. So for example, I've had stories published in Vanity Fair, which have accurate source reporting, proper fact checking, no problem with the palace when I run it. But that story then gets picked up by a tabloid or another publication. And by the time the story pops up on my Google Alerts, it's completely different from the one I wrote.
1: That actually reminds me of one of the first times we had that experience while we were working together. You had a source who, very reasonably, in a very measured way, completely unsurprisingly, said that when Megan was pregnant with their son Archie, she and Harry had decided they wanted to raise their baby without gender stereotypes in a quote-unquote fluid way, which essentially meant that they weren't going to paint the nursery blue, but instead were going for a neutral gray, and they weren't going to fill it with toy trucks. But somebody latched onto the word fluid, and all of a sudden, other outlets were running with the story saying that they were going to raise their child gender fluid. And I think the word that got associated with that in there somewhere was they be. Mm, oh, Erin, yeah. I mean, that was an extreme
2: example of a story being picked up and getting turned into something else entirely all for the sake of a headline-grabbing front page. But the problem is this appetite for more royal stories. Ultimately, it's a case of quantity over quality. And this is one of the things that really winds Meghan and Harry up, that it's all clickbait.
1: And the palace has a tightrope to walk with this, too, and you can see it in their response. Some interest is necessary, but too much can be a curse. Yeah.
2: January the 9th, 2007. It's Kate Middleton's 25th birthday, a day that should have been a cause for celebration, but frankly became a bit of a nightmare.
1: Ever since Kate had graduated from St. Andrews and news about her relationship with Prince William had gone public, she had become a paparazzi favorite. Was Kate going to be the future Queen of England? That was the question everyone, especially the press, was dying to know the answer to. Well, by 2007, William and Kate had been dating for six years. And so
2: when her 25th birthday came around, the press were convinced that William was going to pop the question. Of course, they were wrong. But the rumors were enough to send the media into a full-on frenzy.
1: So that morning when Kate stepped out of her Chelsea apartment, dozens of photographers were waiting outside, hoping to snap a photo of her with a supposed ring on her finger. A swarm of cameras was clicking and flashing as she walked down the street, just trying to make her way to her car.
2: I was told that Kate was really quite upset by that whole experience,
1: and understandably so. William... Was furious. I mean, imagine you're celebrating your milestone birthday and you wake up and you're going outside and your apartment is mobbed. You can hardly get to work, you can hardly go about your day. Everybody in the media is convinced that this thing about you is true, that you're going to get engaged, but you have no idea if it's a leak from somebody who knows about a surprise that you don't know about or if it's just completely made up. It would drive anyone
2: crazy. Absolutely, Erin. And the fact that Kate was a royal girlfriend at the time meant she didn't have any protection officers to help her through that mob of photographers. She didn't have palisades or a media team that she could call up for help. She was dealing with all of this as a private citizen.
1: And shortly after this incident, Prince William actually did something which up to that point was quite rare.
2: Yes, he had his spokesman issue a statement on his behalf which stated that he was very unhappy at the paparazzi harassment of his girlfriend and the statement went on to say that Prince William wants more than anything for it to stop. Miss Middleton should, like any other private individual, be able to go about her everyday business without this kind of intrusion. And the statement concluded that the situation was proving unbearable for all those concerned. Now, the paparazzi did back off a bit after that statement, but a few weeks later, William and Kate actually split
1: up. So was the media to blame? It's interesting because William really doesn't criticize or intervene with the press that often. It seems like he has to be pushed pretty far, but I think the escalation around Kate's 25th birthday was a moment that made him go enough is enough, partially because it just, like, changed the future between them.
2: Yeah, I agree. And I think there were also echoes of the past for William. And in fact, it wasn't just him who thought the press had gone too far. There were a number of MPs in Parliament who felt that the Press Complaints Commission, which is the independent regulatory body that responded to complaints about the press, hadn't moved quickly enough to protect Kate during this time.
1: As William and Harry got older, I think they both became increasingly concerned and paranoid about just how personal the stories were getting. Harry, in particular, was concerned about his groups of friends being photographed out on the town or reporters turning up on the doorsteps of girls he was just rumored to be dating. Private information that they had only told one or two people would make it to the tabloids. Later, they would find out that that paranoia was justified. They had actually had their voicemails hacked multiple times.
2: Yes, this was one of the phone hacking scandals that led to the closure of the News of the World back in
1: 2011. Here's former Prime Minister David Cameron addressing the House of Commons at that time.
0: Mr. Speaker, I'd like to make a statement. In recent days, the whole country has been shocked by the revelations of the phone hacking scandal. What this country and this House has to confront is an episode that is, frankly, disgraceful. It was a watershed
2: moment that that changed the media landscape and the already strained relationship between the royals and the press, which was now at an all-time low. But it wouldn't be the last time the royals took legal action against the media. A year later in 2012, William and Kate took action against a French magazine after they printed pictures of Kate sunbathing topless while on a private holiday in the south of France. Now, to make matters worse, the cover story dropped while William and Kate were on an important overseas tour to Malaysia. And William and Kate successfully sued Closer magazine, who were fined 100,000 euros by a French court. Here's Andrew Lowney again.
4: I think there's always this tension between public duty and private pleasure in the royal family. And of course, this is where the problems begin.
1: So this was the landscape when one Ms. Meghan Markle entered the scene. The royals had fought to reclaim a public-private divide in the press with an impressive degree of success. But for Meghan, that divide that the palace press office depended on really never had existed for her. She was an American actress who had already been shaping her image, And she had a social media presence and a blog that reporters could go to if they wanted to glean details about her.
2: Yes, I mean, you could pretty much track her accession to Hollywood. But I think it wasn't helped by the fact that her family, particularly her father, had given a lot of interviews to the press where they were sharing private details about Meghan and her childhood with the whole world. Because she was so publicly accessible in that way, it had almost become open season for the press to prod and poke and investigate a bit further.
1: What do you think that the royal stand to lose when the mystique is gone or compromised?
2: Well, Erin, I think the mystique is really important because if you lift the lid on the magic, there's nothing left to want to know. You've let the genie out the bottle. And the queen has been really careful, I think, to keep that sense of mystique about the monarchy. She's actually only opened up on camera once, and that was to Edward Meershoff for the documentary Elizabeth R. back in 1992.
4: I didn't have an apprenticeship, my father died much too young and so it was all a very sudden kind of taking on and making the best job you can. It's a question of maturing into something that one's got used to doing and accepting the fact that here you are and, and it's your fate.
2: Now, I spoke to Edward Mirza for my new book, The New Royals, which is about the Queen's legacy and the future of the monarchy. And he described the experience of sitting with the Queen at Buckingham Palace as one of the most extraordinary things he'd ever done in his career. And I think it was quite simply because you don't get to hear the Queen's views on anything. So, what he had on tape was So fascinating because it gave an insight into the real queen. We don't know what makes her tick and this is what makes her such an enigma and therefore so fascinating. Very few people have had a real insight into her life, but there have been moments. Oddly enough, one of those moments came in 2003 when the Daily Mirror journalist Ryan Perry managed to get into Buckingham Palace by posing as a footman. Here's Channel 5 reporting.
3: When the palace phoned, the barmaid apparently on the phone yells out to the pub, does anyone know this Ryan Parry bloke? And a regular who's sitting at the bar said, "Ooh, I know him, I know that Ryan Parry. Oh, I know him, he's a good bloke. And on that basis, the personnel of the royal household employed him.
2: It was quite a story, and he went on to reveal to the world through the front pages of his newspaper that the Queen had her breakfast cereal in shock horror
1: Tupperware. I mean, that's kind of a mundane fact, you know, knowing that the Queen had her cereal out of Tupperware. Yes, Erin, but now it's fine for all of us
2: to have our cereal out of Tupperware, and Actually, the point is, the devil is always in the detail. And, you know, that did rattle the palace. The Queen took legal action against the Daily Mirror, which was extremely rare for her. And there was a settlement reached where the newspaper agreed to pay the Queen around $40,000 in legal fees and agreed not to publish any more articles or photographs about Parry's time at the palace. So, There weren't any shock horror revelations. I think it was more the fact that the press got to see the royal family in a way that they had never done before.
4: The Queen, you know, she has very carefully not let the mystique fall.
2: Andrew Lowney again.
4: This is the problem with the younger generation. The more access that you give to the press, the less mystique there is, the more you have to explain and justify, the more ordinary you become.
1: sure that the modern royals really had too much of a choice in the matter. In the old days, they were really cloistered from normal society. And there's even a story in Jonathan Dimbleby's biography of Prince Charles where... The palace actually thought it was inappropriate for the prince to change for swimming in the regular school bathrooms when he was a kid. This idea that they are set apart from the rest of us by their bloodline just doesn't fly anymore. They have to be representative of all the people in the nation and being somewhat relatable is how they've adapted to that change.
2: Yes, I think we've definitely seen that, particularly over the past couple of years with the pandemic and also with the Cambridge children. It's why we see William dropping them off at a restaurant for a friend's birthday party or playing tennis together at their local sports club. It might be a very posh sports club, but it makes the family seem more relatable.
1: But no matter how hard they try, they can never really be regular, can they? Jess Cagle can see one reason why the press loves to air all their dirty laundry
0: scandal in the royal family is just completely unavoidable because, I don't want to sound mean, but these are like an incredibly fucked up bunch of people, and how could they not be?
2: That's after the break on Vanity Fair's dynasty, The Windsors.
3: And if you are watching this video, either I'm dead or I'm in a very, very, very bad situation. She said, oh
2: my God, I can hear gunshots, I can hear men outside. Where are they? What have they done to them? Are they dead? Are they not dead?
4: There is one suspect,
1: her father the Sheikh. It's Madeline Barron from In the Dark. We've teamed up with our new colleague Heidi Blake at The New Yorker to try to answer a question about one of the richest men in the world, the ruler of Dubai.
3: Why do the women in Sheikh Mohammed's family keep trying to run away?
1: Throughout the series, we've seen some of the ways that William and Harry's experiences inside the monarchy have differed and really led to their distinct and occasionally opposite approaches to royal life. But when it comes to the media, they do have something in common.
2: Yes, they both dislike and distrust the media. And they resent the media intrusion into their private lives. But I also think they both recognize the fact that they can only exist with the oxygen of publicity. They need us as much as we need them. It's a symbiotic and not mutually exclusive relationship. Laura
1: Clancy again.
3: Media has always been key to royal families. So things like portraits of Henry VIII looking really powerful, coins for medieval monarchs. That was the only way in which people could see their ruler. And if you go to today, actually what's really important nowadays is television, is social media. And I think the monarchy know that they need to be seen, right, in order to be understood and in order to be accepted. And I think where William seems to have accepted that the media are always going to be a part of his
2: life... Harry, in contrast, has taken a very combative attitude towards them, saying that he and Meghan will only engage with certain British newspapers and not others. And then since standing down as a working royal, Harry and Meghan have made it their mission to take on the press. Harry's suing at least two newspapers for alleged phone hacking, and Meghan successfully sued the Mail on Sunday for breach of copyright over a letter she wrote to her father, Thomas Markle, in what became a very
1: high-profile and controversial court case. William may not be as quick to take legal action, but he has been outspoken when it comes to the press. His most explicit criticism came in May 2021 after the Dyson investigation. For context, it was an independent inquiry into the tactics used by the BBC to secure that explosive 1995 interview with Princess Diana. The report concluded that Martin Bashir deceived his way to accessing the Princess of Wales and that the BBC's response to his deception was, quote, woefully ineffective. In response, Prince William released an official statement.
4: It is welcome that the BBC accepts Lord Dyson's findings in full. It is my view that the deceitful way the interview was obtained substantially influenced what my mother said. It brings indescribable sadness to know that the BBC's failures contributed significantly to her fear, paranoia and isolation that I remember from those final years with her.
2: It was a damning condemnation of the national broadcaster. And while the BBC apologised, Bashir admitted to having bank statements fabricated. It did raise the question, would Diana have done the interview had she not been lied to by Bashir?
1: And remember, it was an interview that was just short of earth shattering. In it, Diana spoke about her struggles with mental health and the difficulties in her marriage, specifically alluding to the fact that Prince Charles was still involved with Camilla Parker Bowles.
4: Around 1986, again, according to the biography written by Jonathan Dimbleby about your husband, he says that your husband renewed his relationship with Mrs. Camilla Parker Bowles. Were you aware of that? Yes, I was but I wasn't in a position to do anything about it. What evidence did you have that their relationship was continuing even though you were married? A a woman's instinct is a very good one. (laughs) Do you think Mrs Parker Bowles was a factor in the breakdown of your marriage? Well, there were three of us in
3: this
2: marriage, so it was a bit crowded. (laughs) That line, it still makes my hair stand on end. This interview was a major moment because it was Diana shattering the myth of the monarchy in so many ways. And ultimately, it led to the Queen insisting Charles and Diana get a divorce. It was also Diana showing her real influence and power by using the media. And what's remarkable is that 25 years after her death, she's still having an impact.
3: In my opinion, there has never been someone as famous as Princess Diana, nor will there ever be. The reason why I say nor will there ever be is because of how the media changed.
2: This is Sean Faye, writer, commentator and cultural critic.
3: To be the most photographed woman in the world was a unique thing because it required the paparazzi culture, it required being followed constantly and it required the kind of tabloid media coverage. So that's like a different level of singular fame that's never really existed since and hadn't existed before.
1: It was a kind of fame that really changed how we saw the royal family. Absolutely. I mean, Diana very nearly upturned the institution and I
2: think made them realize that they were fallible and there was a very real potential for this image of them as the royal family, which should represent unity and stability, to be totally picked apart. Here's Jess Cagle again, former editor-in-chief of People magazine.
0: Before Diana came along, we just had never seen the sort of human side of the royals before. That kind of stuff had never really been exposed and discussed in the mainstream press. And so Charles and Diana was an extremely complicated, extraordinary union and breakup, but also it was a new toy for the media watching these royals' lives like a soap opera.
2: It really often was a soap opera between Charles and Diana. The War of the Waleses, as it was known in the tabloids. This became a pivotal and infamous moment for the Windsors. Here's Patrick Jefferson, Princess Diana's former private secretary.
5: When Charles and Diana were competing for public popularity, particularly Prince Charles recruited a political type of news manager and political style methods of essentially trashing the opposition came into effect. This is a sad but true consequence of what was called the War of the Waleses. And this is something that has been a feature of royal media management ever since.
2: So it was tit for tat between Charles and Diana. A negative story about Diana would leak out of Charles's office and then the next day Diana would be on the front pages looking incredible at a charity gala.
1: The perfect example came the night in 1994 when Prince Charles sat for a TV interview with Jonathan Dimbleby and admitted to having an affair.
2: Yes, and then Princess Diana stepped out of the car in that show-stopping dress, wiping Charles off the front pages the next day, and all without the help of a PR guru. Patrick Jefferson
1: again.
5: Princess Diana never had a full-time press secretary. We would occasionally borrow a press secretary from Buckingham Palace, for overseas tours, for example, we thought that the best way to communicate what Princess Diana was doing, what she stood for, what was important to her, was by arranging good access for photographers and letting the images do the talking.
1: She had been followed around by photographers for over a decade. It was savvy of her to realize that she could use that for her own benefit.
2: It was astonishing, Erin. Diana actually had her own way of handling the media. She'd occasionally have newspaper editors to lunch with her at Kensington Palace. But I think the Panorama interview showed that even she couldn't control the narrative.
1: At the same time, the Diana in that interview was messy and acidic and quippy. And that's the version of Diana that I am so devoted to. So, Even though you can look at that interview in a lot of different ways and see it as a moment where she cemented her legacy, it's impossible to deny that the repercussions were enormous. It's complicated, but regardless of her motivation for doing the interview, it was the beginning of the end for her. And I think that's why it's so painful to watch now. So when you consider the royals today with their communications
2: office and their social media teams who play a big part in curating their public image— Trying to control the media narrative is a tricky game, and the
1: royals can end up falling flat on their face. We saw this in 2019, when Prince Andrew sat down for an interview with former BBC Newsnight presenter, Emily Maitlis. Do you regret the whole friendship with Epstein?
4: Um, I, now, I'm still not. And the reason being is that, that the, the people that I met Um, And the opportunities that I was given to learn, um, either by him or because of him, were actually very useful.
2: Erin, for me, that interview was a car crash in slow motion. It was so painful to watch. I just remember thinking, I actually can't listen to this anymore.
4: Do I regret the fact that, that, that he has quite obviously conducted himself in a manner unbecoming, yes.
3: Unbecoming, he was a sex offender.
4: Yeah, I'm sorry, I'm being polite in the sense that he was a sex offender. But no, um, uh, was I right in, in, in having him as a friend? Um, at the time, I'm bearing in mind this was some years before he was accused of being um, a, a sex offender. Um, uh, I, I don't think there was anything wrong then, the problem was the fact that once he had been convicted, you stayed with him. I stayed with him.
1: It used to be that when people found out about my job, they would always ask about Kate and Megan. But in the last couple of years, it's been what's the deal with Prince Andrew? What was that with the sweating and Pizza Express? What was he really doing on that plane? Prince Andrew recently settled out of court with the woman who accused him of sexually abusing her, and he has denied witnessing or participating in sexual abuse. But in parts of the interview, he seemed so dismissive of the allegations and what Epstein's victims reportedly went through, almost as though he didn't grasp how serious the whole situation really was. He even said he didn't regret his friendship with Epstein. And I think it speaks to the fact that the royals don't always seem to understand that we're not just interested in them as a soap opera. They do have these roles in society and connections with the government. So it's about a lot more than just ratings. These clashes with the press are also about accountability.
2: Well, I think for so long, Andrew just thought he was going to get away without having to explain himself simply because he was the queen's son, possibly her favorite. But There were so many rumors swirling around about his relationship with Epstein that he seems to have decided the best thing to do would be to explain himself on national television, which he did, and it backfired. You do wonder, Erin, don't you, that perhaps the royals ought to have learned from the past that sitting down in front of the camera is almost always a bad
1: idea. It makes you suspect that they cannot always see themselves the way we see them.
2: Maybe Andrew believed that he was going to be able to control, possibly even change the narrative. And that, together with his arrogance, was a massive mistake. It's a shifting power struggle. The royals wield the power in that they know that they're going to get column inches and front pages. And newspaper editors and royal correspondents like ourselves welcome those stories because that's what sells newspapers and magazines and that's what gets clicks.
1: Here's Patrick Jeffson again.
5: There is a simple rule that I learned. Whenever you see a royal story in the media, you have to ask yourself, why is it there? Who briefed it? Who comes out of it well? Who comes out of it badly?
2: I actually think that these are the questions the royals, or more specifically their aides, do ask, How will we come out of this? Is this positive for the royal family? Is this the message we're trying to communicate? As you said at the beginning, Erin, it's a complex relationship.
1: From the outside, it's easy enough to look at these moments where things go totally off the rails as a failure to fully think through those questions. But the more you learn about the family, the more you begin to see how much their public dynamic is shaped by private conflict. So we start to wonder, What exactly are these wayward royals rebelling against? Who are the people behind them, advising for or against the decisions? And who is in charge of managing the fallout?
4: I think Buckingham Palace can't always remain silent. And so those are the kind of tensions which take place behind the scenes.
2: Next time, we'll explore the inner workings of the royal organization. Can it be characterized as the shadowy halls of power run by men in suits or is it an institution where there are increasingly more women in suits trying to find its footing in the modern world?
5: The royal household, the organization, is a magic machine. It will do anything you want. But you do have to take the trouble to learn how it works.
1: That's next on Dynasty. Dynasty is hosted by Katie Nichol and me, Erin Vanderhuff, and is produced by Vanity Fair in partnership with Something Else. Lizzie Jacobs is our executive producer. Darby Doris and Brian Erstad are our editors. Rob Dozier, Zoe Edwards, Chika Ayers, and Sylvie Lubow are our producers.
2: Ginny Bloom is our showrunner. Basha Curtin and Jessica Jones are our associate producers. And Ike Ekbertola, Lily Hambly, and Peyton Hayes are our production coordinators.
1: This episode was engineered by Josh Gibbs, and the theme song was composed by Wooly Music. Fact-checking was done by Sarah Karlewski. Dynasty was conceived by Vanity Fair executive editor Claire Howarth. Claire and Katie Rich are our staff editorial consultants. Thank you to our guests, Jess Cagle, Laura Clancy, Andrew Lowney, Patrick Jeffson, and Sean Fay.
2: If you love the show, be sure to rate, review, and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. For more Dynasty, visit vf.com forward slash dynasty. And you can follow Vanity Fair on Instagram and Twitter at Vanity Fair. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker and host of The New Yorker Fiction Podcast. On the podcast, I ask a great contemporary writer to select a favorite story from the magazine's almost 100-year archive to read and discuss. Together, we delve into the story, exploring its themes, its style, and what makes fiction work. You can listen to authors like Otessa Moshfegg talk about why we
1: write. Story, or attaching a story or creating a story, is this inclination that we all have to
2: stop spinning. And you can hear writers like George Saunders discuss the nature of storytelling.
5: On the first read, you accept these things as descriptions, and they make you see the scene. But every line is a chance to inflect the reader's mind.
2: You'll discover new favorite authors and read old favorites in new ways. Episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast are released on the first of every month. Listen and follow wherever you get your
0: podcasts.